0: Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. Today, we are joined by the man, the legend, Alex Osterwelder. He is the founder of Strategizer and the brains behind something called Strategizer, the business model canvas, and the customer value proposition canvas. He is the real deal. Alex, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Why don't you give us the elevator pitch and walk us through what we need to know?
1: So, you know, my team and I at Strategizer, we tried to help unlock the the potential of millions with business tools around universal business challenges like uh, business models, value propositions, organizational culture, and our client base is actually large companies around the world uh, like uh, MasterCard, Nestle, Novartis. We just help them build growth engines.
0: Growth engines. How would you define what a growth engine is today?
1: So it depends a bit, you know, what kind of growth you're looking for. So one, if you're in a large company, you need financial growth, right? (laughs) You get a return for shareholders. But then, you know, the best companies go further than that. They're looking at growth also in terms of employee experience. They're looking at, you know, improving their impact in society. So growth is something you need to define and then you build towards that.
0: Fantastic. Cool. Um, so I've got a lot of questions that I want to get into uh, with you today, um, Alex. So um, what made you curious initially about business model ontology? What, what was the spark that led you to, you know, generating the kind of thought leadership that, uh, that you have done to date?
1: Yeah, so I was always interested in business. This goes back a little bit, right? So I studied political science and I went to business school and did uh, information systems. And at the end, <clears throat> there was this opportunity to do a PhD, a doctorate on business models with uh, my long-term friend and co-author now, Yves Pinier, who is my PhD supervisor. And the reason I got interested in the topic of business models was very simple. Intuitively, I thought, "Wow, business models allows me to look at every aspect of business, not from a, you know operational point of view but from a strategic point of view and it was you know during the e-commerce boom so it was really changing business models and my intuition was always together with eve that business models is a relevant topic for everybody and you know today you can ask a company what industry you're in doesn't make sense because the business model is the unit of analysis right apple what do they do yeah they make phones but it's the business model that's powerful. Same for Amazon, right? They do e-commerce, they do all these kind of things. So it just got me excited and started with a PhD with a doctorate and then people got interested in my work. And that's, that's how it all started. And the internet, you know, made this stuff popular around the world.
0: You got to love the internet. <laughs>
1: got to love the internet. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Cool. So in, in 1999, uh, I was doing my research and, um, and you founded your first startup all the way back then called Net Finance, uh, which focused on financial literacy. I'm curious uh, about how that formative, you know, first startups are pretty formative. So how that first formative experience influenced your thinking about business model design and uh, and ontology?
1: Yeah, so was, it's fun to think back so far, right? And yeah. how naive you are when you start out. So it came from a personal interest. I, you know, was a student and I was investing online because it was the period where it was really easy to start investing and watching, you know, CNBC and all of that. But um, I, I realized there are more people who are interested in doing that, and we started a small educational firm to help investors figure out how to do this. So we did classes. It was really like an educational startup to do classes, and then we started to address financial institutions and tell them, hey, we know how to educate people on doing this online because the financial institutions at the time were only starting to create their e-brokers, right? And Switzerland is known for banks. So we had quite a few banks that we could go to. So that's how it started out. And we made so many mistakes, you can't even imagine. It's just, you know, when you start... At the beginning you're very naive, but it was fun. It's fun period.
0: It is a fun period. I think a startup is probably the most fun environment you can uh, actually be in in business. Once it gets to a certain scale, it becomes less fun. <laughs> you know, because you don't really, you mean, the business model is validated, you kind of know what you're doing, who your customer is, and so there's a lot more certainty than, you know, the startup you know, uncertainty I think, stage. Yeah,
1: I push back a little bit on that, right? Okay. So you just need to know what you enjoy. There are people who don't manage, who don't enjoy the messy early part where you have uncertainty, where you have chaos, right? That's how this startup is at the beginning. There are people who are very comfortable and very good at managing. That comes later on. So I think it's just <clears throat> important to know what do you like? What do you enjoy? And then you join a company or create a company that corresponds to that. And that's why one of the big choices is also, do you want to create kind of a lifestyle organization or a scalable startup? Those are two very different things. right? So we, we talk about startup as if it was one thing. Some people mean scalable startup, something that will become very big. And some people just, you know, think about building their own business. You know, entrepreneurship is a very broad term, can go all the way to family organizations. They call themselves entrepreneurs, but they've been around for generations. So I think you just need to figure out what type of entrepreneurship do you enjoy most? And that's what you need to go look for. Um,
0: Alex, how do you figure that out? I'm curious. I had Steve Blank on the show and I think um, I had... um... This, this topic come up a few times. In other words, it's like there's the flame and the wax. And if you need, if you figure out what your flame is, uh, you become a lot more, um, well, you're the propensity for you to be successful is a lot higher and happier also. Yeah. Um, so in your experience, uh, obviously you consult to a whole bunch of startups uh, all around the world, corporates as well, which we'll get into. Um, but, I, but I'm curious, how do you figure that out? What kind of founder slash entrepreneur you are?
1: I think you first need to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in different fields, right? You take more of the lifestyle entrepreneurs that build smaller businesses, you know, maybe up to 10, 20, 30 people. And then you talk to those who were venture-backed or got very, really big. And besides the venture-backed, they're now the bootstrappers that get very big. It's different from the bootstrappers that stay small. Just talk and listen to them. What were the biggest struggles? What were the things they were dealing with? And then you can ask yourself, do I want to deal with that? Yeah. Because when you're a venture-backed company, you don't have a choice. You are condemned to grow and at a crazy pace. Now, some people love that. They love the pressure, but you're all in. You, you actually, and Steve Blank likes to say this a lot, You just bought into this, the business model of your venture capitalists. You're not, you know, you're dependent on that. And then you need to look for the next round, et cetera. So if you're comfortable with that, if you're up for it, great. And you might just want to try, right? So you can't just read this stuff and talk to people and then immediately know you have to live it. And, you know, I think over time, I I started to realize you figure out how things work by doing them. And it's okay, you know, to fail with certain things. You fail with a scalable startup once or twice, ask yourself if you want to do it a third time because you're probably going to get better at it. But you might also say, well, this is just not my thing. Because, you know, even a lifestyle business is hard, but it's different hard. But a venture-backed or it is a scalable company, that's a whole different dimension. And you need to really know what you're getting into, try it out. And probably first before doing it yourself, Join startups, right? You know, be an employee in a startup and you'll see, you know, what life looks like. That's the easiest way to figure out, you know, what this is all about.
0: Yeah. You're touching on a very important point because, um, my most recent uh, group of companies started scaling up, you know, doubling revenues every year, hiring lots of people, and then we reached the stage where I had so many people in the business, I was like, this actually sucks. Like I'm no longer happy as a founder I think i'm I'm so sucked into culture and people and all the scaling up stuff um that I'm actually less effective than I was when i you know when we were ten people um and so I've learned to your point that i I'm not a scale up guy like I don't think I would actually like to take money and like a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars or whatever it is. And then just have to, you know, get a 10X return on my uh, on my capital, you know. Uh, it's just not in my DNA. Like, I'm a guy who will see a gap in the market, commercialize the gap, build you a house, but I'm not going to build you a skyscraper. That's somebody else, you know. And it, I think,
1: and I love that. I mean, what you're saying, but I also think it's not black and white. They're in between. Yes. So, if you take our case, we were, you know, a relatively slow-growing company for a long time, but now we decided... Let's scale because we created a lot of stuff that was successful, but we never picked one to scale. But since we were profitable, now we have a different possible path than venture capital. So we're raising debt. So there you don't have the same pressure. You have the pressure to remain profitable and pay back the debt, but you don't have the same pressure to grow at an incredibly, you know, at a crazy pace. So you can kind of steer it. So between the smaller house or the smaller building and the skyscraper, increasingly they're their, their in-betweens, right? And between the bootstrapper and the VC-backed um, company, you, you can work with debt. So I think we're getting more sophisticated also in the way you know, of how, how we want to grow without having to choose between this black and white, right? Staying yeah. small or taking on VC.
0: Yeah. And I think it oscillates, you know, so I think at some point you will take debt on the balance sheet. It's like a prerequisite, especially if you're going from like, let's say a services business model to a product based one and you need the capital to, let's just say, hire a small dev team in-house or even outsource it like, you know, a partner, which is a key quadrant in your well partnerships, the key quadrants in your canvas, right? So uh, you have to figure out, okay, well, economically, how do I fund this thing? So at some point you have to take on some debt. but to your point, I hundred percent agree with you. it's very different taking on debt versus a you know a high growth VC partner because they they're vultures, <laughs> if
1: you like. yeah, and you know again, I mean, they're playing their role and they're providing more, you know depends, right? some some more than just capital. so, there's good stuff going on there. I think at the end, as an entrepreneur, you just need to choose, as you said, as you nicely illustrated, what makes you happy? Life is too short to waste your time, right? Yeah. And then build that company to make you happy. Because the worst thing you could do is just to you know suffer. You become an entrepreneur to build something you want to build. So the last thing you want is to actually stay in a company that you've created on your own and then, you know, it's not fun. That's really, really terrible. So I, I hate people who complain, right? I like people who say, okay, this is not working for me. I'm going to change. We all have a choice. That's the luxury. There are enough people on the planet, you know, of the seven, eight billion we have today who don't have a choice. We have the choice. <laughs> and we should not waste our time with stuff we don't really, really enjoy doing. And when I say enjoy It can be hard work, right? But you need to enjoy that work.
0: Yeah, you got to enjoy the suffering, right? Because there's a lot of meaning that comes along with the suffering of being in a startup, you know? And I love those environments. Um, And I think there's definitely, a uh, in my my experience, is very much a Silicon Valley narrative. Like if you go to TechCrunch, it's like a whole list of companies that raised X amount of money that's now valued at X billion, you know? Um, And it creates a perception that, you know, if you don't raise money, if you don't scale, you're not like you know, the, the, a successful founder and Bo Burlingham, I don't know if you've read the book, but he's been on the show and he wrote the book, Small Giants, where he, he literally went out to find companies that were giants, but were small. In other words, they'd been around for 10, 15, 20 years, highly profitable, never raised money, uh, but were like kings of their particular industries or, or, or their categories. And it was fascinating that, you know, there, is, there are founders who nobody knows about, who have built these remarkable businesses that have, you know, really stood the test of time. Um, and so the Silicon Valley narrative, high growth, startup, yes, it's great. It's a, it's a great place for some people, but not for everyone. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: I think, you know, I'm seeing more and more entrepreneurs who are beyond that narrative, right? So we see a lot of bootstrap companies now, and they don't want to compromise on culture. And, you know, after what we've seen with WeWork, what we've seen with Uber, I think, you know, growth at any price has a bad rep now. And I do think the world has evolved. Even Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley has come under a lot of pressure I think there's great stuff going on there and there's very bad stuff going on like anywhere in the world. And yep. um, so you need to kind of define as an entrepreneur, what success looks like for you. And, you know, I don't think the press is always helping with what they put on the cover of magazines because a lot of it is just not true. Right. So the number of companies that raised money and then died, we don't really talk about those. <laughs> the number of, you know, young entrepreneurs who dropped out of school and became billionaires, that is the rare exception. The statistics actually show the most successful scale entrepreneurs are 40 years and older, right? So there are all these myths that, that right? You and me, buddy. <laughs> the press makes us believe to a certain extent. I don't want to you know, blame the press. They're doing their job to 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 sell sensation. Yeah. But we need to go beyond that and and really do the hard work of asking ourselves as entrepreneurs and as business people in general, what do we really want? Can we create that environment? And I believe more than ever before, we have the choice. But right? you don't have to work for a large company if you don't. If you're not happy, leave. Create your startup. You don't need to create a scalable startup, right? Figure out what is really important for you. And I don't think enough people, I believe, and there are not enough people who do that hard work to define their very own personal success criteria and then work towards creating the environment for their personal success. We shouldn't adopt the success criteria that the media tries to impose on us. That's just bad, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the things that I've, I've observed is that there's too many founders building businesses based on accumulation. In other words, what can I accumulate materialistically and how fast can I do that? And that's the business that I want. And too few founders, to your point, are founding businesses based on who they are and what lights them up and what success means to them. Have you found I think that-
1: there's more yeah there's more of that happening right so we'll always have if we put it black and white we'll always have those and I shouldn't say those right there's always this this desire oh I want to get rich I'm going to cut corners I'm going to do you know what nfts or whatever else you want and then there's those who do the hard work of figuring out what is important to them and they create the organizations that actually do that so you know, and then there's it's not as black and white. But I see more and more, and that's super, super fascinating. More people with profound values, and then they live up to those values, which may include wealth, because you know it's, it's not like wealth doesn't matter. But they they don't compromise. They won't go you know for the shortcut, and that's super, super important. I think you know with with the Ubers, with you know at the beginning, and with WeWork. I think we're kind of living the end of those shortcuts. Maybe wrong mm-hmm. if I look at what's happening kind of in, in web three still, <laughs> but, but, um, I see a whole bunch of people who are building organizations where they want a strong culture and they won't compromise on culture just for growth.
0: Yeah. Yep. So let's talk about you and strategizer. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, success means different things to different people, uh, scale we touched on now, uh, different types of founders, uh, so um, I'm bringing it up on the screen for everybody. So this is strategizer.com, uh, strategizer innovation software. Um, what, you, what is success now for you? I mean, obviously business model canvas is used all around the world, um, but what does success now mean to you?
1: So for our company, and then also for me personally, you know, like our, our customers are large companies around the world, right? So we get them on board and they pay us for us to help them build growth engines. But what I really, you know, hope we can do is change the way they work, right? So, again, actually creating real growth engines, but not just growth engines, but better places to work. And here's the reason why, right? So, we kind of glorify the startup world, and I love the startup world. It's kind of where I came out of, but we don't realize always or we tend to forget that The established companies on the planet, if we can change them for the better, we'll have much faster and bigger positive impact on the world than if we create disruptive startups. There's something there. But if you get a company that has 400,000 people or a million or beyond a million, I don't know, Amazon is, I think, at 1.5 million employees. If you get them to change in a positive way, wow, imagine the impact. And that's what drives us, is impact. Can we change those organizations for the better? Our first thing you what know, we're looking at is, is innovation. Can we help them actually innovate? But longer term is, can we help them become better organizations with happier people at the end of the day, right? Because if we can have you know, an Amazon with 1.5 million people working there with more happier employees, Guess what the impact is on the world? It's huge because people who are happy at work will be happier at home, which means a happier society. So I don't think this is utopia. I think with the tools we create, we can actually have a really strong impact. And if we don't, I think we failed as an organization, as a company. So it's not, if we want to scale, it's to scale the impact that we have as an organization that strategizes. So impact is always for me, the number one. And of course, you know, being successful as an organization (laughs) happens if you have that impact.
0: Right, I got you, I got you. Um, So I've dabbled with corporate innovation before, um, about six years ago, prior to the founding of my most recent companies. And what I found in my uh, humble experience is that corporates, uh, at least in Africa, love to talk about innovation, but actually doing innovation is a very different thing. (laughs) So, Uh, right, and I don't know if that's true, you know, in, in, in you know in Switzerland or Europe or with your customers in in um, in uh, in North America for instance or developed economies around the world um, but, um, but it's a hard thing to do. I mean, even startups have it lucky, I would say, because they get to pivot quickly, like we pivoted four times before we found our strap and then everything changed. Uh, but uh, corporates, you know, it's a big ship. It's like trying to turn Titanic. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's very hard. Oh, it's yeah. so hard, man. It's so hard. Um, and getting senior uh, leadership buy-in is essential in the whole innovation journey or growth engine journey especially when you have shareholders and the company might be listed and so on and so forth and established customers, blah, blah, blah. So where in your experience, uh, Alex, where does corporate innovation actually go wrong most of the time?
1: So I think in the past, it was almost a nice to have, let's say, you know, maybe 20 years ago today. And that's the good news. Companies don't have a choice. Like it's not, Oh, Ah, I will do innovation, right? No, you, if you don't do, you'll get disrupted, right? I mean, look at the Netflix and Blockbuster story, right? So that is happening in so many industries, right? It used to happen just in media, and, but that was happening everywhere, in food, in pharma. So today, if you take our list of clients, we have five of the top 10 pharmaceutical companies on the planet who are our, our customers. Why? Because their business model died 10 years ago. They don't have a choice. So I think what you were saying, of course, is very true that a lot of companies talked about innovation. There's actually a BCG study that says 75% of companies put innovation in the top three three things they need to work on, but 20% only are innovation ready. But that is growing fast and I can see it from inside companies. So the leadership commitment today is it a completely different space than 3 years ago, 5 years ago or 10 years ago. And that was the last missing piece. Cuz I don't think any company has a problem of innovation talent or ideas. Like every company, you know, if 100 people onwards, you have innovation talent, you have enough ideas. But what you need beyond the processes is a committed leadership who creates the ecosystem for innovators or corporate entrepreneurs to flourish. And that's happening. It's slowly happening, but it is. So the reason I can say this with confidence is because we're starting to work with senior leaderships and boards to redesign the org chart to give innovation power. Because, you know, there is no company on the planet that doesn't do innovation, but it remains innovation theater. Steve Lang likes to use this word a lot as well, innovation theater. But today, companies can't afford innovation theater anymore. They need innovation results. Because if they don't get innovation results, they'll end up like Blockbuster, and this is really, really happening. We're seeing it in the in the food industry. It's happening, so they don't have a choice. And you know, some companies will disappear. At least some CEOs will disappear if they don't embrace innovation fully and they don't fully commit. So the last missing piece is leadership commitment, and that's our challenge at Strategizer. We were bottom up. You know, we get all companies use our tools. But what we didn't have yet, and what we're working on now, is committing. You're getting all the CEOs to commit to actually create the innovation ecosystems for these tools to work. So that was the last missing piece, and that is happening across the board in all industries. Really fun period of time.
0: It is, um, and also one of the key things I came across recently is 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 the average age of a New York Stock Exchange listed company. So 50 years ago, it was 78 years. That was the average length of standing or tenure of a company listed on the NYSE. Now it's 18 years. Yeah. So it just goes to show, right? I mean, in a, Facebook is 18 years old, trillion huh. dollar company. And that happened so fast. I mean, if you think about Toys R Us is another great example uh, of, yeah. uh, of a company that didn't fully embrace uh, e-commerce and paid the price for that. Um and you know, Kodak and there's just so many examples of this, Blockbuster, so on and so forth. Um, but it seems to me that uh, to your point, this is no longer a nice to have, it's an absolute requirement. So I'm curious to maybe double down uh on your um your reference there around an innovation ecosystem. Cause yeah. I, I, I'm curious, cause obviously uh, for those of you who don't know, the business model canvas is a fantastic canvas to help you figure out how to innovate. And I, that's my very succinct, <laughs> uneducated view, <laughs> considering you designed the thing. Uh, but uh, I'm curious now, how do your tools, uh, you know, uh, live in a innovation ecosystem? I'd love you just to unpack that for us.
1: So let me actually see if I can switch to quickly draw something. There, there are two drawings I'm going to make. And it's actually what I use with, uh, with senior executives around the world. See, oh, look, we got it to work. Okay. <laughs> so basically, every company you know, beyond the startup stage that is starting to scale a successful business model and becomes a corporate actually has two worlds within that organization. That's exploit managing your existing business model and scaling it. And over time, you're probably going to have more than one. And then on the other end, you have explore, which means continuously. So let's take this as an established business, right? It's almost like, okay, little building, little house. But over here, you know, you can't afford to not explore anymore. So if you're an established company like Nestle, over 150 years old, Well, if they don't continue to embrace this world here of real exploration, they're going to die. They're going to disappear because the food industry is under huge attack, right? Because it's getting easier and easier for small companies to reach a large audience. So you actually need to create one ecosystem that has two cultures under one roof. You have an execution culture, which we call exploit, and you have an exploration culture, which allows you to search and test and kill, but then also let the be- best business models and ideas bubble up. And if you don't really pay attention to creating this ecosystem over here on the left-hand side, this one here is going to dominate everything. So you basically have the antibodies here of the existing company killing anything that looks differently. So you need to, as a CEO, if you're up here with your leadership team or a co-CEO entirely responsible for innovation, you need to explicitly and de- deliberately build a culture of innovation that coexists in harmony with the culture of execution, because it's a plus, it's not versus. And you know, think of it this way. So so Sometimes corporate innovators, they call themselves pirates, right? And they're rebels, and they're super proud of that. And I say, well, that's not very smart because historically we kill pirates and rebels. So is that really what you want? So when, when people say, oh, we give out prizes, you know, for, for people who are breaking the rules to innovate, they say, well, why don't you change the rules? Don't give out prizes for that. Mm. In innovation ecosystem, you have different KPIs, you measure different things. You actually need to work in a very different way. You're extremely iterative. You fail a ton. It's like the startup world. It's almost like a mini kind of startup world within your organization. And if you don't build that, you know, the, the corporate antibodies are going to kill anything that looks different. So as a CEO, that's your role. It's not to pick the winning ideas. It's to build the ecosystem for winning ideas and winning teams and corporate entrepreneurs to bubble up. Today, most companies are losing their innovation talent because they say, well, what do I want to do here? This is like a nightmare. I have so many blockers to innovate. I'm going to create a startup. But I think the profile of the startup entrepreneur and the profile of the corporate entrepreneur are not entirely the same. Because I believe, and I remember having a conversation with the CEO of Logitech, Bracken Darrell, about this, you can have professional entrepreneurs who are on the payroll of a company, and they will have a different profile than the entrepreneurs that are VC-backed outside. So I think we just need to build that ecosystem, and it's happening. That's the fun part. Companies are embracing this because they understand increasingly how innovation works and how different it is from execution. Managing the existing, we always need to do that, but we have to give equal power to inventing the future, within corporations and it's happening that's the fun part
0: yeah uh, so having those two sort of buckets if you like of exploit and uh, exploration or explore um, uh, you know up on the screen really brought something to my uh, consciousness which is about the role of startups in engaging with a corporate because um, in in africa um, the, there's a, I don't, I'm sure it applies in many markets, but in emer- in Africa's emerging markets specifically, there's this thing of B 2 B to C. So we don't have this massive consumer market. So, uh, but what uh, banks do, what corporates have, is a massive base of customers. So if you're a startup in financial services and you want to scale quickly, you go B to B and then to C. And so the B2B part is where I'm focusing uh, the conversation as I'm sure you've figured that out, uh, but it's about a startup going to a corporate cause, and saying, hey, we've explored this space, we validated the business model, here's an MVP or here's product market fits, wherever they might be. Uh, why don't you come and buy us or integrate our technology and then you can you know, provide more value to your 10 million customers. Um, but in many cases, um, it's a scary place to go as a startup founder, the reason being is that there's a saying, I don't know if, if you've heard about it, but startups go to corporates to die uh, because, yeah, of course. It, 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 you know what I mean? Like, cause you could have like an amazing product and then you go to a corporate and then they completely stuff it up, you know, um, and you lose out, you might get access to a thousand customers, but in reality, you don't really get access to the 10 million. You, you get a promise and not an actual result. Um, yeah. So where does uh, how, in your experience now, what is your advice to a startup who has a product, financial services or whatever, um, and they're looking to engage a corporate, how should they approach that whole conversation? What should they look out for?
1: So I think, you know, and I have a friend who's actually doing this with, with AB InBev and Santander you know, for, for some fintech organization. And he was asking me some of the questions exactly like this because he's a young company in the scale up phase. And I think the key is not to put all of your eggs in one basket, right? So sometimes as an entrepreneur, you say, oh, and in particular, first time entrepreneurs, you would say, oh, this is my breakthrough. Now I can work with this huge financial institution. And don't put all your eggs in one basket. So continuously reflect on the business model. If this doesn't happen, if this doesn't work out, What's my plan B? So I'd be very careful with with seeing this as the ultimate solution. I'd always continue to to look at everything else. Um, Then I do think, and I was a bit critical in this concrete example from my CEO friend, and I said, well, be careful when they invest in you, they might swallow you up, right? And their corporate goals are different from your goals as an entrepreneur. Mm. But it actually turned out to work really well. But he was always careful you know, in, in managing that kind of relationship and seeing, okay, what would I do if? And it worked out extremely well. So I do believe this is a very powerful path, but I would never bet just on partnerships because as an entrepreneur, you always need to be prepared for the worst. So I would continuously keep the business model reflection in mind. And I would also make sure that you don't get, you know, tied up in corporate politics, um, where you're just going to waste a lot of time. So only go into deals where you immediately get results. If you go go into deals with the corporation, where everything is going to take ages, you'll just run out of money, right? So you have to be a bit careful. There's no black and white. Oh, this is going to work. It's not going to work. Make sure <laughs> that you're not getting into a lengthy process that's going to suck the blood out of you like a vampire.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're busy being acquired at the moment, and we met with uh, a couple of the de- decision-makers who are interested in acquiring some of our technology. Um, and the, uh, the company is, a, is a, it's called Discovery, a worldwide uh, brand, super successful in healthcare. And they're looking at taking one of our technology products and integrating it into different business units. So we met with them yesterday and obviously you don't know when you go into these acquisition conversations exactly why they're interested, like what's the motivation behind them, what's the strategy, how do we support this, all that kind of stuff. But I'm listening to them talk and I'm like, you know how long this is gonna take? Do you have any idea how long this particular acquisition is gonna take if we go with them, you know? Uh, because to your point, now they want to meet all the other business unit heads, and then for me, I'm a guy who's unemployable. <laughs> so it's why I'm an entre- I'm an entrepreneur, right? Because I had like a shelf life <laughs> going into a corporate. Uh, because I don't I don't live in a I can't handle authority and the structure and this how slow it is and the politics and the just in general it's a terrible environment for me to live in. So, you know, and I think about that, I say, well, if I did sell, like, would that, would we be going there to die? And I believe that we would be going there to die, (laughs) you know, Um, uh, but uh, it it is very much a a context relevant uh, approach, you know, and I think going back to right up front, what we discussed was who you are, you know, what type of founder are you? Um, and I think there's a corporate f- entrepreneur idea. There's a startup founder who just wants to have a lifestyle type business and there's a VC founder as well, you know. Um, but um, all of these things are, are really subjective. If I might change gear for a moment uh, with you, Alex, um, I wanna talk to you about technology. So um, in, in developed economies, what I've found is that technology is used in the context of innovation to displace the incumbent. In emerging markets, technology is used to include the previously excluded. And I would love to ask you in your experience now, how do you see the role of technology? I know it's a broad question, but how do you see the role of technology uh, playing out across business model oncology or in the context of your tools? Because you're looking at the different things and you might say technology, but I mean technology applies to all the elements of that canvas, right?
1: Yeah, I I think, let me be provocative. I think technology is overrated. When we say innovation, we think technology, but you shouldn't, right? So, and I'll get back kind of maybe to your question later on. Mm. But so let me, and there's a provocative example I always use and I say, well, think of the Nintendo Wii. Okay, yes, it's a technology product. It was a game console when they launched it. But here's the thing. When they launched the Nintendo Wii, when, we, when Nintendo launched it, it was an inferior technological platform. So the Nintendo Wii was inferior to the Sony PlayStation 2 at the time, was inferior to the Xbox in terms of processing power and graphics. Okay, so inferior technology. Why did they win, at least for a period of time? Because they figured out There's an underserved market of casual gamers. They understood their jobs, pains, and gains, which had nothing to do with processing power and graphics. It had to do with fun games, motion control, and simplicity. So they actually built a business model around that that was much more profitable than the technology-driven business models of Sony and the Xbox. Think of it, right? So what I would always put first... And I'm not saying technology is irrelevant. It can can be a driver. But what always comes first is two questions. How am I creating value for my customers? And how am I creating value for my business? Value proposition canvas, one tool for customers. You make explicit how you're creating value for customers. Business model canvas to make explicit how you're creating value for your business. And that's a much bigger space than the technology space. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is Maybe a decade ago, I was working for uh, one of the biggest hygiene companies of the world, a Swedish company called SCA. And they said, wow, Alex, this is provocative. We're going to take all of our failed technology and science projects, and we're going to put them through the lens of what could the right business model be? So while you may use technology to create value, technology in itself does not create value. It's a neutral instrument instrument so the bigger space is creating value and sometimes technology can unlock value creation sometimes it's not even required right think Nintendo Wii it was an inferior technology so if we bring it back to the context you're saying i think what's really exciting in the in the context of emerging markets or developing countries however we want to call it is that business model innovation with technology can probably unlock things that weren't you know, accessible before. And it doesn't have to be new and advanced technology. It just has to be you know, the, the right thinking around customer value creation and business models. So it sounds very trivial because I'm basically saying, well, go back to the basics, but we get so excited about technology that we forget. The only thing that matters first is, are we creating value for customers and how? And are we creating value for our business and how? And then we may or may not use technology to unlock these things. So, again, I think we need to go back to the fundamentals and not kind of, you know, get too excited about the sprinkly fashion of, oh, this technology, and that technology. Technology is just a tool. And if you don't understand the business basics and, and, you know, the basics of entrepreneurship to a certain extent, you even with the best, newest technology, you're going to fail.
0: yeah. It's um I was actually going to ask you about how things like decentralized technology, blockchain, you know cryptocurrencies, nFTs you touched on earlier, um you know how does this new you know technology that we're so excited about uh, apply in the context of you know business model design as an example, and that's what you're oh, saying, yeah.
1: right yeah. I'll give you a historic example, and then we can ask ourselves how does that apply today. So, and because I love historic business model innovations. So the first photocopying machine was the Xerox 914. Okay, that was a new technology. And actually it was, the company was called Haloid before they launched that whole thing. First modern day photocopying machine. It was insanely expensive and it did something nobody actually knew they needed. It could make 2000 photocopies a day when people didn't even know they needed photocopies, right? Today, we don't need them anymore, but right back then that was so new because you would make 20 copies with a smelly chemical process. So they had two challenges. Nobody knew that this technology could be useful to them and it was way too expensive. So they had to come up with a completely new business model to even bring it into the market. So what did they do? They said, okay, we're we're gonna lease these machines and you get them for a really cheap price. We're gonna do big shows in, in you know, in, in New York, in the middle of the city, so people can get a feel for this. But here's the thing: they, they did a business model innovation. They said you get 2,000 photocopies for free for every month with the leasing fee that you pay. But for every additional copy, you're gonna you're gonna pay a couple of cents. So people said, oh, this is good, I'm going to take it on. And then what happened is they started photocopying 2,000 times a day from day two onwards, you know, um, or Xerox then, as it became, would earn money. So the question is not the technology per se. The question is, how can I create a business model around a technology to make it work? And if I'm looking at the whole kind of blockchain world today, I'm not seeing that clarity. So. I started out with business models when the e-commerce world started, and then we had the bust. But there I could tangibly understand some of the business models. Today in the blockchain world, today, and I'm, I'm the last person you want to get advice on on that world because I don't understand it yet. But the reason is not the technology. What I don't understand is the business models. And when I don't understand the business models, because today, most of the stuff that is winning is basically platforms to exchange currencies and stuff. like That's not a value-creating business model. That's speculation. So, you're, so I don't see yet, clearly, and I'm sure it will happen, but I don't see yet any business models emerging other than trading platforms for, for digital currencies that are really here to show me this is how it's going to be an infrastructure like the internet. Will it happen without a doubt? But as long as I can't see the clear value propositions and business models, I'm remaining skeptical. So, so I think at the end of the day, always back to the basics. What's the value proposition? What's the business model? No company can survive. Again, sounds really trivial. No company can survive without value proposition or business model. Today they can survive because there's an insane amount of venture capital money that's that's infusing um money into this market but there there are to my understanding other than trading platforms nothing there yet um in terms of independent business models that I can really deeply understand, but I'm an ignorant in this topic. So the last one you want to ask? <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. But even though you're one of the world's leading experts in business model
1: design, well, business I, models, but not blockchain, right? Those are two different things. <laughs> I know, but this is
0: the this. I suppose this is the friction, right? You know, in the sense of you have this, you know, innovative disruptive technology, um, and everyone um, is you know, I would say I, I agree with you. And the reason, in terms of like, you know, the crypto space specifically, there is a over index towards platform and exchanges. So there is a uh, an exchange here called Valor. They've now valued at three and a half billion rand. It's about $200 million, uh, but they're like 18 months old, just to on-ramp into crypto. Um, and, you know, I understand that, right? But when I hear things like, decentralized, uh, finance applications or, um, you know, crypto payments, uh, wallets and things like this. I don't understand that. You know what I mean? Like I understand what it is as a promise, but I don't understand the business model because the majority of the world isn't there. Maybe if we have another crash, you know,
1: but here's what's, yeah, here's, what's going to happen. Right. So you do need to understand when you look at that world, it's like, venture capitalists, they invest in a portfolio of ideas and uh, of projects. One out of 10, or depending if your early stages, one out of 100 will win and return the entire fund, right? So what we need to be clear of is that of all of these startups that we see out there, the majority is gonna die. They're gonna go away, right? And, and the reason today <laughs> these have these huge valuations is because everybody hopes, and here I have you know clear value judgment, everybody hopes they can make a quick buck. They want to cut corners. Everybody wants to get rich without working just by investing in, in, in a new thing, right? But what you need to remember is 90% of these are going to die. And your ability to pick the 1 out of 10 or the 10 out of 100 is very small. Venture capitalists know that they can't pick the winner. So they invest in a portfolio, as individuals we just need to remember we can't pick the winners in a completely new field so a lot of where i think i'm a little bit sad is a lot of people are going to burn their fingers because they don't realize you can only do this with play money right and of course some got rich and those are the stories that make it on the cover of a magazine because it, they're insane valuations but this is not real real will happen when one bubbles up right amazon today we couldn't see at the very beginning, people were saying Amazon is going to go bust and it doesn't work and the business model is broken. Today, it's one of the most successful companies in the world. But this is exactly where we are in this cryptocurrency space today. Some will make it, but it's impossible to see which ones are going to be the real winners. So that's what's exciting. But unfortunately, a lot of people are going to get hurt and they're going to burn their fingers.
0: Yeah, it's like I keep seeing NFTs like everywhere on um on Instagram, it's like the new, like this monkey design It's going live and uh, we've got, you know, MMA fighters, um, you know, li- launching their own NFTs and, you know, and, and Gary Vaynerchuk selling his, like, car- have you seen that silly thing? Like the caricatures thing and I'm going to sell you the digital of my shitty design <laughs> you know, and he made $70 million off that, you know, go figure with, uh, I think it was like Sotheby's or something like that, where they auctioned off the same the original artwork, I mean, the, the world's gone insane. Um, but <clears throat> when I think about these things, especially the NFTs, to your point, a lot of people are gonna be holding a lot of expensive JPEGs.
1: Yeah, you know. and, and that's where they're gonna burn their fingers. So as long as you know, this can evaporate and it's gonna go away, what you did, that's okay, right? But I think we just need to understand that, yes, this is going to have an impact. So I've probably made a lot of enemies, you know, saying what I just said. Of course I understand that cryptocurrencies are here to stay and there will be something. But today there's a lot of hype around stuff that is not clearly creating value for customers and creating value, you know, for the business. So as long as I'm a pretty down to earth person, as long as I can't understand the value proposition and the business model, for me, it's hype. So if you can't explain to me the value proposition in the business model, you don't have a business, right? So today, again, I think the main kind of success is happening in, in currency trading platforms. But is that is that it? I don't know. But there's going to be something. It's going to be fun to watch. Unfortunately, a lot of people are gonna burn their fingers. That's where I get a little bit sad. And I think it's fueled by growth and it's fueled by wanting to make a quick buck and, and cut the corner. Yep. At the end of the day, you know, it's all about hard work. And when there's no hard work, I'm a bit suspicious because then it's probably snake oil.
0: <laughs> well, now I have to ask you, the metaverse, what's the underlying business model for the metaverse? You need to unmute yourself so I can hear you laughing. <laughs>
1: So, look, again, you know, it, it's, a, it's a topic to stay. But think of, I was a huge fan of Second Life when it came up. I went to the World Economic Forum on, on Second Life, and it was cool, right? But that stuff, to a certain extent, existed before. Again, whatever you want to call it, this, this is just technology. Will it create value um, in one way or another for customers, and will some companies build a business model around that? for sure because microsoft for example is 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 investing in it in a big way now what are the business models going to be in that space that's less clear so i'd almost be a bit less skeptical about the metaverse than cryptocurrency in terms of emerging business models again both are here to stay both will have an impact but i think the the metaverse is probably a little bit closer also <laughs> due to the pandemic Um, What are the winning business models? We'll see a whole variety. So, you know, the thing, the way you're asking is almost like, okay, what's the business model, right? The business model. There is no such thing as the business model anymore. Just look at what's happening in, in the media space. You have Amazon, you have Apple, you have Facebook, you have Netflix, you have Disney. They're all competing in the same space with fundamentally different business models. And in arenas like the metaverse, you'll see the same thing. There won't be a one winning business model. You'll see um, Amazon playing in that space, Microsoft investing big in that space. You'll see startups coming into that space, and they'll all do it in a very different way. So we'll see multiple business models. That's why I'm so excited about the topic. You need to understand the fundamentals of value propositions and business models so you can design one that works for you. Don't copy others because today, the unit of analysis is the business model, not a technology, not an industry. Industries are dead. That's Michael Porter, 1985. Today, you're not a victim of industry forces. You shape industries, you create them, you create arenas. So I think we need to go back to the basics um, in business, value propositions, business models, you know, c- scaling culture, and that will help us figure out the right thing. I can't give you anything else than the tools to do it. There is no magical advice. If I told you this is it, then, you know, I'd be selling you snake oil.
0: Well, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get Alexander. <laughs> well, I, when I was speaking to Steve uh, Blank, he said to me, you know, the, the purpose of a startup is to validate uh, the business model. Um, and that's the primary purpose of it all. Because once you get there, You know things start to scale um uh, question from my side i'm sure my audience would benefit from your answer on this one but um what is the difference between steve blank's lean startup eric reese's lean startup method and your strategizer tools
1: so they they all go together right so um steve blank's customer development which then had the aspect of the lean startup kind of agile development is a process and in that process you need certain tools which we supply with the business model canvas and value proposition canvas process without tools don't work and tools without process don't work so you know you could use the business model canvas to to make a modern day business plan and then execute and you'd fail so what you do need is to sketch out your idea in half a day business models value propositions and then you accept i don't know if this is going to work I'm gonna go and test and adapt, right? So that's where the process comes in. So both together is how the magic happens where you put process, like customer development lean startup together with uh, with uh, the tools. So let me just make this one drawing because I think this is important. In the startup world and innovation, we kind of go from idea to a real, business let me make a skyscraper here this is a real business with flags and so right? and this is not a linear process where we draw a business model like this and we execute with a business plan unfortunately people still make business plans this makes no sense because the process in the in innovation and entrepreneurship is messy you advance you regress right and some of them will make it to here so the point is You need to accept when you start, uncertainty and risk is at its maximum. You don't know if it's going to work. So you take a starting idea, and the ideas are cheap. People think, oh, I need a great idea, and then I'm going to succeed. No, ideas are worthless. What you need to do is reduce the risk of this being a stupid idea. And how do you do that? (laughs) Well, you start to talk to customers, right? And they will tell you, I don't have this problem. I'd never pay this. You failed. Good. Just reduce the risk. Then you make a paper prototype or a brochure. You put it on here. They say, well, I don't care about this. You fail. You change. You adapt. So you increase, I'm using this color all the time, you increase the investments in the experiments while you're decreasing the risk. And you're constantly adapting your idea. So the hard part in innovation is to adapt the idea until you have a value proposition that customers care about until you have a business model. That's why I personally, I actually start to avoid the word validation. This validation sounds like I'm gonna take this idea and I'm just gonna validate how smart I was. So I like to you know go back to the roots of, of Steve Blank's thinking. It's a discovery process, customer discovery. So I adapt my idea until I have sufficient evidence that this is gonna work, right? So the hard part about innovation is to adapt the idea until you have enough evidence that the value proposition business model could work. And that's a gradual process. It's not a light switch. You do 20 experiments and the patterns will emerge. And the difference between the past and today, in the past, people like Steve Blank did it intuitively. Why does a person like Steve Blank like these tools? Because it helps you go faster and more method, you know, methodically than if you just do it intuitively. So entrepreneurship is more accessible to us than ever before, because now it's a profession with processes and tools. Long answer. It's (laughs) a great answer.
0: And I love the drawings. It makes me want to, I need to know what kind of tool that is. So I can start drawing, (laughs) drawing cool caricatures and stuff. (laughs) Kind of like Gary V. Uh, But, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a great point that, uh, but that you're landing on there. Um and if you guys are listening on the podcast, go to my YouTube channel and and kind of catch the drawings. Um so let's wrap this up. Um Alexander, why do you do all of this? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning?
1: So I'm just excited about so I'll admit, you know, together with my co author and now friend Yves Pinier, who used to be my PhD supervisor, we're obsessed by creating good tools that help business people do better work. So I actually enjoy creating tools that make a difference in business people's lives. And that goes from the startup entrepreneur all the way to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I just love creating these tools that help them do better work because it makes me feel like an enabler, right? I don't give the answers. I provide the tools and processes. And when I say I, it's together with strategizer and the community of thinkers, like Steve Blank, uh, Eric Reese, and and others like uh, Rita McGrath, but that's what gets me up—just having fun, seeing how this stuff gets adopted. Because it's not about selling books; it's about making a difference in people's lives. Fantastic!
0: And on that bombshell, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real privilege having you here, getting your story on record. I've used your tools. I highly recommend anyone who is in a startup mindset or even a corporate innovation mindset to go and look at strategizer.com and get your hands on those tools. They really do work. Um, Alex, thank you once again. Thank you for all of you who've been watching online. I really appreciate it. We will see you all again soon. Cheers. Hi there, guys, and thank you so much for checking out The Matt Brown Show. If you want more content like this, head on over to YouTube where you can catch my Million Dollar Principles channel and more interviews on The Matt Brown Show YouTube channel. Get weekly thought pieces and advice and so, so, so much more. And don't forget to like and subscribe for more Matt Brown Show episodes.